There's something special about when people unite for a cause they believe in. It's a charge in the air, a sense of the power of the masses marching together. Whether calling for same-sex marriage or action on climate change, protesting is the type of good trouble that has changed the world. Now, however, the streets are quiet. COVID-19 has made it more difficult and more dangerous to protest. Causes that drew their strength from large numbers of bodies on the ground have to take the fight online or face potential police crackdowns. What was once considered slacktivist is now critical for staying engaged. For better and worse, social media is now where people go to articulate and fight for their beliefs. It offered an opportunity for people to say, this isn't the way that I want the narrative to be defined. But how do these platforms compare to communities forged on the ground? Today, we're taking to the virtual streets to examine the power of protest movements when they go online. How does the public assemble when public assemblies aren't allowed? When is sharing online a form of civil disobedience? Can a hashtag save a life? This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Toby Hemmings. While COVID-19 has curbed most protest actions, it has also served as a powder keg. On May 25th, George Floyd was murdered when a Minnesota police officer knelt on his neck for seven minutes and 46 seconds. Passersby used their phones to record and bear witness to his death. The horrifying footage spread across social media and made international headlines. George Floyd was hardly the first African-American to die by the hands of the police. Consider the cases of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. But something here touched a nerve. The impacts of COVID-19 had already laid bare the structural inequalities faced by minorities. Heather Thord is an associate professor and head of discipline in digital and social media at the University of Technology Sydney's School of Communication. She believes that the video footage showed the injustice faced by African Americans. The most interesting things I've heard about the first video, that video of the murder of George Floyd, was that George Floyd was not this terrible risk. He was not an aggressor. He did not deserve the actions that were taken against him. On social media, people responded with outrage. The video went viral and catalyzed a wave of action. Black Lives Matter marches occurred across the US and Europe. In Australia, the movement refined its focus to a pressing local concern, Aboriginal deaths in custody. Despite COVID-19, legal challenges from the police and outcry from the government, the initial Black Lives Matter protest on June 6th drew around 20,000 people in Sydney and 20,000 people in Brisbane. We're not going to stop. We're going to march. We don't care what any acts of law tells us what to do because those acts of laws are killing us. Latona Dungay, the mother of David Dungay Jr., who died in Long Bay Jail in December 2015. 
the Dungai family have been calling for justice for over four years. Despite the present risks, activists felt that the mass response to George Floyd's murder had created a moment to push for change that they had to seize. Over this time period, social media accounts became sites for education and activation. Supportive profiles shared anti-racist information in their stories or posted donation receipts to sympathetic GoFundMes. An example of this eager but rudderless energy of people wanting to help but not fully knowing how to was the online protest action hashtag Blackout Tuesday. Now, the initial idea was for Instagram users in the entertainment industry to spend a day reflecting on the disenfranchisement of black artists. However, the message quickly shifted. So um, I have seen people on my Instagram feed, for example, posting a blackout for Blackout Tuesday. Heather Thord's Instagram was full of people taking part and blacking out the feed in solidarity. And then I've also had people posting other kinds of images and saying, I refuse to and I will not post for Blackout Tuesday because I feel like it's too easy for me just to do this. I think the bigger question is about what is needed, what kinds of actions are needed in order for a social movement to gain enough traction that it actually has a real impact on the lives of people who are affected by it. That's the big question. By posting a black square, are people being seen to be helping the cause as opposed to substantively helping the cause? Does sharing a black square on your social media account, followed by friends and family, actually accomplish anything? Tuba Faruqi is an activist and socialist. To her, sharing materials in solidarity online is the first step for engagement in causes, just as long as you're willing to do the work. We love people like trying to challenge the ideas in their head and challenge the dogma and challenge all these regressive ideas. And I think... I can't get caught up in trying to understand the full intention behind someone sharing a post or there's, you know, I'm sure there's virtue signaling and whatever. Spotify put out a black power playlist. I don't know what that, that's performative. And that's really problematic. But when I see my friends or someone share something, I think our job is to take that new idea and to explore it and say, hey, come to the next rally. Social media is an unreliable way of figuring out who is engaged and willing to participate in protest actions. It's really, it's quite, a, it's quite a difficult thing to gauge people's political commitment, even if online it might seem like more sometimes. Yeah, there's definitely been times where a Facebook event might say a few hundred and only 100 or 50 people turn up, or it might say thousands and thousands more turn up. There might be a tendency that Twitter might have it trending right now that it's cool to say a cab but you know it's really hard to gauge that without political struggle on the streets we often don't know what online can translate to in real life unless you're you've been one of the people out there building like handing out flyers putting up posters talking to people yet in some countries handing out flyers and putting in the work on the ground is life-threatening In Iran, protest is not lightly tolerated. What we're now seeing is that protesters are increasingly um, being given the death penalty. Nikita Wright, 
a campaigner with Amnesty International. In November last year, there was an announcement from the government about a rise in oil prices, and that led to really widespread protests in Iran. And this is pretty rare in Iran because protest is heavily penalised. And then again in February this year, after the plane crash in Iran and the Iranian government's terrible handling of that, we saw more protests again. And in response to these protests, there was a really violent crackdown by the police and by security forces. Amnesty International estimated that approximately 300 people were killed in Iran's latest crackdown. On July 15, three Iranian men, Amir Hossein Maradi, Saeed Tamjidi and Mohammad Rajabi, were given the death penalty for taking part in anti-government demonstrations last year. Given the dangers of taking to the street, Iranian citizens instead logged on to Twitter. We saw around 4.5 million tweets in 24 hours using the hashtag don't execute. And it became the top Twitter trend in Iran, which it's really rare to see such an extent of political activity on social media in Iran. And, you know, we had this huge campaign by Iranians to call off their death sentences. Yet the government did not take this response lying down. The day after 4.5 million tweets with the hashtag Don't Execute flooded in, internet speeds across Iran suspiciously slowed down. Curbing citizens' access to the internet in the face of online dissent is an emerging tactic for certain regimes. So last year, in response to protests in West Papua and Kashmir, the internet was actually totally cut off by the government. So you also stop the flow of information from getting out and that obviously affects friends and families around the world and it also means it's harder for us and for news organisations to know what's going on on the ground. Misinformation and fake news are also tools of suppression. Certain Twitter accounts and bots were found attempting to muddy the waters for those looking for reliable information on protests conducted in Iran. Protesters were reporting incidents of violence by police. There was coordinated campaigns and that would see a lot of tweets saying, I never saw anything. And, you know, I, I was there and nothing happened. And if you looked at their accounts, they would often have only one follower. They would have been set up in the last couple of days and they would only be tweeting, you know, about protest incidents saying, I didn't see anything there. Despite this, the Don't Execute hashtag campaign did have an impact. The Iranian Supreme Court has suspended the executions of the three men pending a judicial review. Now, on the one hand, this could be seen as a testament to the power of the people online. But on the other hand, a review doesn't necessarily guarantee freedom and could lead to the reinstatement of the death penalty. Nor does it prevent the Iranian regime from violently cracking down on protest in the future. International visibility and awareness of a cause are now the easy part thanks to social media. Heather Thorpe believes that crafting a protest action that achieves systemic change is much harder. It is actually not easy, but it, um, it's become easier to gain a lot of global traction around the visibility of a problem. 
But in order for that problem to truly be solved, solved for the people um, that endure it, you need institutional things. And so you need to translate all that action into the everyday institutional policies and practices um, that will give rise to that real change. And that's, I think, where we need to focus a lot more attention. For Heather, this requires more than a 280-character tweet. People need to move beyond their outrage at a certain situation to stop doom scrolling and start thinking constructively about how they can use online tools to positively affect change. We feel like we are witnessing it firsthand when you watch a video of George Floyd dying, for example. I mean, that is that is incredibly impactful witnessing that you're doing and it affects you. We need to, you know, you need to move on beyond the anger in order to make change. So and more often than not, off the platform. <laughs> so the platform is you know, where the, these visibilities happen, but you'll need to move off the platform in order to really enable that deliberation. With that said, the emotion online can be intoxicating. There's a sense of how personal and up-close everything feels and of how easy it is to react without thinking. But Heather really believes that it's important to take a step back from the screen before you respond. A belief in the core and how we get swept up emotionally in a lot of these movements. You have to actively work against it. One of the things you have to do is actively slow down your response. You know, when you get really angry about something, you go to Twitter and you try and get people to empathize with you. Then you have to actively work against that. And I've been doing that just very recently. And it's hard because I do get very angry about things. Sometimes it is absolutely necessary to get very angry, but it can't be the only way of expressing ideas and opinions. Yet it's also important to remember that online campaigns can do certain things that can't be matched offline. And that includes giving people access and influence. Nikita Wright believes that online platforms are best served targeting those with power or those who your movement seeks to influence. Online and offline campaigning have to work in step in order to achieve hard-fought goals. There are so many things that can be done online that we can't do on the ground. And I'm thinking about things like emailing targets, tweeting at politicians. You see how active they are on Twitter. You know, you see Donald Trump and all the conversation that happens online that politicians are a part of and they can be reached on social media in a way that they can't in person often. It also allows you to reach an amount of people that you just can't reach in person. And I don't think we should forget about, you know, on the ground um, organising and working really on the ground. And we also have realised over the last decade that the online sphere can be an incredibly powerful tool and space to make change happen. There's just been a recognition over the last, you know, decade or so that there isn't that separation between your life online and your life in real life, so to say.
Despite COVID-19 and the current public health order restrictions, activists still continue to find ways to organise and protest. Socially distanced picket lines have been arranged to call for wage increases. Refugee activists have used car convoys to call for the release of immigration detainees. The fight continues, but in new forms. For local activists like Tuba, the thought of continuing to organise over Zoom or Facebook Messenger is not ideal. I really stand by this idea that like having to use all this social media stuff, it's, it, it has created quite a lot of fatigue, really. People feel that they're over-communicated with, over-online. Talking, like having an in-person meeting the other day for the first time, I think in a few months, really just energised me. There will never, ever be a substitute for face-to-face, in-person interaction. Watching that real-life consciousness develop. Yet she remains committed to fighting for what she believes in even in the uncertainty of the current climate. Yeah, I think part of it is, like, we don't know, but when there's a spark, you have to be ready to, like, light that fire, you know. Think Digital Futures is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio and the University of Technology, Sydney. This podcast was made in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can hear more of Think Digital Futures at 2ser.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Toby Hemmings.